exciting Eve Harrow Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, February 7th, 2022, seventh day of Adar, 5782, the first month of Adar. We've got a leap year this year on the Hebrew calendar, so we've got Adar twice, which is actually really nice because that's the happy month. So if you have to have two months of a, if you two months in a year, this is the, this is the one to go for. Uh, and I'm so excited. First of all, I want to thank all of you for the feedback that I got for last week's show. Um, the webinar with uh, Hillel Fould seems to have really moved a lot of people, and I think that it was it was really great. He was very open. But um, today I have with us someone who, those of you who've been listening to me for a few years, you have definitely heard his tones on this podcast before, Dr. Scott Stripling. Although I think this is the first time we're Zooming an interview. Usually we're standing together, as people do, and I, with a mic and like the old-fashioned way. Uh, either in Shiloh or at some conference or wherever. So, um, Dr. Stripling, you're in Texas. I'm here in Israel. I've got a feeling, I don't really want to be in Texas, but I've got a feeling you wouldn't mind being here. So, remind my listeners all the things that you do, because the list is just wild. Well, thank you, Eve. And we're not separated because of COVID protocols. Um, it's just that I happen to be in Texas and you happen to be in Israel. Um, so as we we bring the two worlds together, we say shalom, y'all, you know, just yeah, marry the two. Uh, thanks for having me on. And in answer to your question, um, I am the director of excavations for the Associates for Biblical Research at Kirbet el Makatir and at uh, Ancient Shiloh. And uh, ABR, by the way, has been excavating for 42, 43 years in the highlands of, of Israel. So uh, it's, you know, multiple projects that give us a regional perspective of the of the those critical sites and then I'm also my day job is I'm the provost at the Bible Seminary in Katy Texas and we do have an archaeology program here an institute of archaeology that I oversee well given the fact so last I think last time I interviewed possibly was at Shiloh but I was up there anyway and one of the things that you instituted at the dig at Shiloh which of course is where many of us believe the tabernacle rested for not going to say how many years because that's all up in the air is um, the wet sifting, which is yeah. an incredibly important way of sifting the dirt. I was just listening. I was doing a conference today, and one of the archaeologists was saying, you know, we used to just take the dirt that filled all the interesting stuff and throw the dirt aside. And now we're realizing not only that there's things in the dirt, but the dirt itself, she was talking about, can give us a lot of clues. So, th so actually, in an archaeological dig, there's no garbage anymore. I mean, everything is precious. But you, and I saw the setup that you did in Shiloh, and it was really amazing. I was supposed to be helping you, but I was too busy prancing around, um, to wet sift. And because of that and your expertise and your staff's expertise, so you were brought in now on something, or maybe not now, but it's come out now, on something super exciting having to do with Joshua's altar. So please fill us in on some of the details. And if there's something that hasn't been in the news that you can like sneak to us, hey, that's even better. <laughs> well, you might be able to trick trick one, trick me to say something. Oh, okay. Um, we're, we're super interested in these early conquest sites. Um, Jericho, I, Hatsor, Shiloh, Shiloh, uh, Mount Ebal. So, be, the reason that we need to study them together is because there's a pattern of evidence that exists. It's not just that the pottery at this level at this site is going to be one thing and it's going to be different at another site. We should find a consistency in those those levels at these different sites. So my, my radar has long been on Mount uh, Ibal. It's inaccessible, unfortunately, because of the Oslo Accords, uh, leaving it uh, in Area B. 
but we came up with this idea. I was talking with a group of Israelis and uh, they were lamenting that we could not do any, you know, work on, on Manival. It's the site is called El Bornat on the second step on the backside of Mount Ibal. And just to fill in, this is where Dr. Adam Zertal, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, um, found Joshua's altar back in the 80s. Of course, very controversial. Not everybody agrees with him with Joshua's altar, not on the side it was supposed to be on, but leaving that aside. Um, and of course, the Palestinian Authority, as you mentioned, because of the Oslo Accords, doing their best to get in there and destroy it, which for them is win-win. You can destroy a biblical site and steal stuff. So... That's been a real challenge. So you guys got in there and continue. Yeah. So my idea in talking with this, this group of Israeli friends and scholars was, uh, well, we can't do excavation, but that doesn't mean we can't wet sift the dump piles. And for a long time, for decades, Herschel Shanks and BAR was beating this drum that we needed to go back and wet sift dump piles from the 1980s. And I had already done a test case at Shiloh with older dump piles, and I knew they were loaded with stuff. Archaeologists in the past were throwing away more small finds than they were publishing, tragically. Um, So I I said, well, perhaps we can wet sift this material because that's not excavation. And besides, the the material existed prior to the Oslo Accords. And so uh, could, could this be done? So to make a long story short, and through many, many twists and turns, um, the material was relocated. 30% of Zertal's dump pile, what piles uh, were relocated to a nearby site. And we built a provisional wet sifting station where we then dry sifted again and then wet sifted all of that material. And we found about 300 diagnostic pieces of pottery. By the way, Zertal was very thorough in comparison to uh, other dump piles that I have checked. But as thorough as he was, he he missed some very important things. And the one that you're alluding to is um, a small lead tablet, and it's about two centimeters by two centimeters. It's folded in half, so it would be like two by four if it were unfolded. We were unable to open it in our lab without damaging the tablet itself. And so I left Israel, assuming I would be back in a few months, and then the world turned upside down. And so I did not have access to it. But it, during that interim, we found a, a lab with the help of Zwi Konisberg. Uh, he assisted me in this. We found a lab in Prague. And um, I was able to get into Israel a few months ago and to get into my storage. Got the tablet then um, out of storage got the export permits, Zwi, excuse me, curried it for me to Prague, where it underwent many thousands of scans. And believe it or not, Eve, these days we can scan through lead. You know, I think growing up watching Superman, I thought lead couldn't be scanned or something, but but it it can. Yeah, it can. And so now we're getting the results back. All the post-processing work of these scans is coming back. And this is modern archaeology. Uh, we now can see what's on the inside of it. Well, so just a couple comments. One is for all of us who wore a lead apron when we were getting x-rays, now it's time to get nervous. Actually, they can scan through it. So you were getting more than an x-ray at the time. Good to know. Um, but let me just ask you something about lead, though, because, I mean, I'm interested in, you know, in the metallurgy and, and 
We're talking now, the time period that you're discussing now is just the ends of the Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age, um, right? At least here in the land of Israel. It's different around the world. Um, I mean, they knew, according to my understanding, they knew about iron, but they weren't able to smelt it out of the rock. They didn't have the ability at the time to get the heat up. And so eventually they were able to do that. How does lead fit into this in the, as a metal? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So lead is very ancient. Now they were not able to mine it in this sophisticated way that later iron was mined, but lead did exist. Think about the book of Job, for example, in the Bible, one of the oldest books. Genesis and Job are probably the two oldest books uh, in the Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> you have a verse in Job that talks about um, a curse being written on lead with an iron pen. So there you go. Very. Are we ancient. sure it's lead that he's referring to? It says to lead say, in the text. I mean, because, you know, a lot of times the translations, or maybe they didn't mean it then the way we know it now, like that that in itself is a whole school of thought. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've never seen it disputed, but that's how it's translated at least. So my, my point is that that's a very ancient text that mentions this idea of writing on, on lead. And so curses, of course, were pronounced from Manibal, blessings from Mount Gerizim. Mm-hmm. And so verisimilitude then mm. comes into play. We have a, a text that talks about an altar that talks about curses. And what do we find? A cursed huh. tablet. Huh. Now, when it's found, and coincidentally, it was in the tray of Frankie Snyder, who's a very experienced wet sifter, was part of my team. And so when Frankie saw it, she got my attention. I went over and almost had a heart attack because I knew immediately what it was. Frankie did too, but this is what we call a defixio or a curse tablet. And so whether we would be able to re- recover text or not, there was no doubt that originally that there was text. Now, is it early Roman text or, you know, right. second temple period? Or is it earlier than that? Well, this is where, where it became very, very interesting as we investigated this. And I'll just tell you that the, it, that, is, that is definitely before that time period. So it is prior to the second temple period. So we're dealing with very early text. All right. But that's a big sway. I mean, before second temple period up to Joshua's hundreds, maybe even a thousand years. So how do you, how are you going to be able to date this piece of lead? Well, epigraphically we can through the, the style of the letters. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we have a collaborative team that's working on this of epigraphers and scientists and I anticipate by the end of the summer that the academic article will be out. Now there's, you know, little snippets here and there in the media, right. and it's no secret that we that there is an Aleph on there, and that that Aleph is a very early early style. But that's about all that that I'm going to trickle out. Um, all right. So an Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but it's also, yes. I mean, it's it's an ancient symbol for the head of a ram, the alpha male. I mean, you got all this. It's the head. It's the first one. Right. Yep. So it's not it could it be a Hebrew Aleph or it could be from some other language, earlier language, later language. Is there any guesses without, of course, blowing it? Well, because of the context uh, that's there. We're confident that it's Hebrew. Uh, okay. Wow. What yeah, else is so there? There were other symbols? There are other symbols that are there um, that I can't get into right now because we're still in the process. We've got to dot every I or every Alice <laughs> or whatever, cross every T. Right. Uh, um, can I say it if Paul. I heard something? Yeah. Can, can, um, yes. Sure. Can, that I heard something about a lotus, a picture of a mm. lotus, which is an Egyptian kind of a symbol. 
Well, that's an that example true? of a lotus is an Egyptian symbol, but that's an example of something that was stated that, um, as we have done further research, does not appear to be true. Oh, okay. What, what originally seemed like a lotus now, now we believe was something else. But you're not going to tell me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not able to right now. But you guys um, can't see his face. I'm on Zoom, but you really want. I'm just telling you. And they say in Hebrew, Don the Cubs would like to give someone credit. He really does want to tell us. So I really uh, do. Yeah, I um, think it's harder for him to, to not tell you us. You could probably <laughs> convince me. Um, we're going to have a conference at Shiloh on July 31st. Um, okay. And we'll be celebrating, by the way, the 100th anniversary of the commencement of excavations by the Danish at Shiloh this summer. Wow. Started in 1922, so this will be 100 years. That's amazing. And then we'll also celebrate the publication of this uh, important amulet or, or defixio. And I hope that the academic article will come out uh, concomitantly with that. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Well, wow, hundred year. I mean, I, I go to Shula all the time, as a lot of people know, and going to the church that the Danes discovered and the beautiful mosaic floor that has on it a star of David, which always, of course, provokes a lot of conversation because people look at it and they go, oh, this is an ancient synagogue. And I'm like, no, Star David was not the symbol for the Jews a long time ago. So that's it's always a great place to go into. And they really kicked off something that's much, much bigger. And I don't know if everybody imagined well, it's kind of exciting. In. You know, we're planning this big celebration. I got sort of a back channel message this week that the queen, uh, uh, Denmark's queen, might be interested in coming to the. Uh, no kidding. So, you know, uh, just dropping some names. Wow. Uh, and and but, of course, uh, of course, you're serving Danish because that's what you have to course. serve. Terrible. <laughs> Hopefully you'll do better than that. Um, so let me ask you, though. So, well, some general questions, you know, if I already have you here about archaeology, because you've been doing this for a long, long time and uh, done some, you know, I'm, we've we've talked about this on other on other interviews. I'm not going to review it. But one of the things that that I felt this year when I was you know, doing a degree in archaeology is that suddenly I suddenly realized that archaeology is not just about digging things up, but it's actually digging into the ancient world and digging into the lives of the ancient world. And you find a piece of pottery and now, you know, you can figure out what they ate or where they were, or what they wore. But there's also times where you find bones and, you know, you realize that you are witness to the, you know, uncovering like the last throw. And a lot of these people didn't die natural deaths either, like in their bed, surrounded by 50 grandchildren. It was a tough world in those days. And many of these people starvation or war or whatever it is. Um, how does that, if you don't mind, because this is already like veering into something uh, maybe a little more personal, how, how does that affect you also as a, I mean, just as a human being, as a, as a you know, people, people that you love around you, but also as someone who's more, uh, more involved or more knowledgeable about maybe the context of that person's life than most of us would be. And maybe can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, I mean, there is a very much a human element to this. Uh, many years ago when I was excavating in Jordan, um, I had a woman and two young girls that were crushed by a, a wall, a mud brick wall that had, had fallen on them. They had the jewelry still on the little girls had wow. bracelets and, you know, and excavating those, it, it was very moving, you know, because you think these were little girls had the same aspirations that right. any girl little would girl. have. And, 
you know, their day started like any other day, not knowing an earthquake was going to hit in the Jordan Valley, that this mud right. brick wall was going to fall on top of them. Now, I will tell you this. We find more female skeletons than male skeletons, interestingly. Why? Why um, do you think that is? Because that's usually in a domestic context. And in antiquity, the men were more often out mm-hmm. um, doing whatever men do. Yeah. Uh, and women were more domestic. And so, you know, you're in a big earthquake zone there. And so <laughs> when you get these earthquakes um, or within a domestic context, even in the Great Revolt, because we found a number of skeletals, skeletons from both revolts, but in right. the Great Revolt in particular, uh, men usually died up top um, fighting and they were trying to hide their families in these underground hiding systems, hiding hmm. complexes. The one at Kerbet el-Makatir, which I published with uh, David Rabiba and uh, Yuha Fahir last year, um, they were found out and they were murdered. And so it right. was just just tragic. And so when we excavated these disarticulated skeletons, wow. we studied them anthropologically. We determined it was seven females and a young boy. And, you know, so that that story as it unfolded, and I don't have to tell you this, Eve, but the mitzvah within Judaism of right. burial, you know, being Huge. so critical. And these, these women had never been buried. You know, they were murdered and there they had lain and they had seen the second temple. You know, that's, it's that time period. Um, so yeah, you start digesting all that and then it's not just another day at the office. It's, uh, sure. there's a human element, a, a huge human element. And also, as you said, the word mitzvah, I mean, it is considered, it is actually considered one of the biggest good deeds for those who don't know what mitzvah is, but it's more than just a good deed, um, to bury someone because they can't thank you. You know, like a lot of times you do something nice for somebody and they say, thank you. You help an old lady cross the street. You give some charity. But to do this is called really what's called in Hebrew, chesed shelemet, like a true good deed, because you're not going to get thanked. It's a one way thing. But um, mm. but I would imagine also given, you know, again, your tremendous knowledge of those time periods, you can really envision their last days. You know, what's yeah. going on? Oh, absolutely. You know, they, they're there with stone vessels and, you know, coins, first century coins and just the, the terror that they must have experienced when they were finally found out. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the Romans, those last moments of their life. Eve, if you have a chance, visit the uh, the Ofra Cemetery, and yeah. in the Ofra Cemetery, you will see a monument to these to these uh, victims and these these murder victims. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just quite quite moving. Quite moving, yes. And now, I mean, they're buried now in a, in a modern Jewish community. Ofra is not the Ofra of the Bible. Uh, we think that it's not the same site for a variety of reasons of Gidon and of others. There's a few Ofras in the Bible, but also we have, we have cases where people's resting places are disturbed. I and mean, that's part of, it's something I've been thinking about because I've been asked to, in a couple of weeks to, um, to be the moderator of a panel on disturbing antiquities and destroying antiquities, especially in the heartland, especially in Judea and Samaria, which is really your focus as well. And you have things that are stolen and, and people that yeah. are intentionally, they, they were buried and then the rest was disturbed for political reasons, for reasons that go beyond, there's no reason to do something like that. And I think some of those have also been reinterred. Uh, major cemetery near Jericho of the Hasmoneans, of the Hasmonean time that also, that second temple. So yeah, there's a lot that, um, yeah. that, that you come up with. Uh, well, you know. Theater, we had a second temple period tomb also mm-hmm. that uh, we excavated, but it had been robbed at some point in antiquity. Right. And so the ossuaries, there were broken pieces of ossuaries, but they were gone. The bones were scattered. They probably just threw, threw them out very mm-hmm. sadly, but 
But what we did recover were teeth. And so we were able to determine 18 people had been in this tomb at one point just from the teeth. And, you know, that's a type of metaphor. It's called metonymy, where a part represents the whole. And uh, so even those teeth, you know, this is, this is living evidence of someone who lived in the land, who was buried in a Jewish tomb in the first right, century right. Uh, before the Great Revolt. And you can also probably see to some degree what their, um, what their hygiene was, what they were eating. You know, if, yeah. if their bread had a lot of rocks in it, their teeth would be ground down. Yeah, exactly. So the pathologies by studying their bones, we can tell, you know, for example, this, the older, oldest woman in this grouping um, was arthritic. And so we can estimate what her age, you know, would Mm -hmm. have been. Um, We can estimate their pathologies. What was their health condition at the time of death? We can even now we're starting to be able to do DNA testing, uh, which is just phenomenal. That's just on the horizon. Yeah, I was that, that's a lecture I was listening today where they were going through all, you know, the testing metal, testing dirt. Um, obviously, the pottery, you can tell where it was made. If it wasn't if it wasn't found where it was made, there was trade going on or some kind of dealings happening. And like the science now in, in our it's in archaeology, it's just become so multidimensional that uh, zoology, everything. It, it's really it's such an exciting field. I mean, you must you know, because you're in it for a few decades must be a tremendous change from when you started and where we are now. Oh yeah. We're, we're in a vortex. Um, absolutely. We've been sucked into this vortex and there's no getting out of it. Um, you know, we can, we're just going to have to take the, the good with the bad that comes with that. Um, and I think there's more good than bad. I mean, our, mm-hmm. our methodologies are better. Our modes of communication are better. The challenge is, of course, modernity and urban sprawl and right. vandalism and these things. But right. that's reality. That's the world in which we're, we're living and that we get to do this exciting work. But I mean, I would say also as, as people of faith, I mean, you as Christian and, and me as a Jew, they're also, it always comes up again, the science and the Bible because, and I, you know, it's something, I mean, I've discussed this with you and, and other people have discussed. It was very challenging for me this year to be in an academic environment, learning Bible in an academic environment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always go lockstep with, you know, believing in the Torah and learning from the Torah. And um, I guess there's some degree a danger to this soup, this extra knowledge as well. On the one hand, it gives us really a look deeper. We can really make the Bible three-dimensional if we're in a site where we know people lived, what they ate, who they traded with can really fill out the picture for us. Or as you said, how they died, you know, as you so poignantly just described that, but it also could end up throwing the dates, which are always a problem, at least before the middle of the ninth century, um, back into confusion. I remember when I first became a tour guide, I would rarely see very Orthodox Jews in the city of David, for example. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've seen more and more. And it gives me great joy because I realize that by them being there, the, what, a lot of what we're finding is not just negating the Bible, but it's actually boosting the Bible. Otherwise, it would be difficult for them to go there and have that conflict. So very much of what we're finding is really filling that out. But how is that for you, though, you know, as a, as a theologian, as a you know, person of deep faith? Every t- do, you, do you put the science aside when you go to a site or is it with you as, you know, is the Bible with you when you're at the sites? Do you kind of make that split between the, hmm. the scientist and the, uh, you know, and the, the person of, you know, with deeply held religious beliefs. 
That's a great question. I, I don't think we have to bifurcate the two. As a mature academic, I'm capable of compartmentalizing these two and having a dialogue. So the fact that I have expertise in the biblical literature is a huge advantage. Great. I mean, think about the things like at Shiloh, we have a bone deposit and two thirds of the bones are from the right side of an animal and one third are from the left side of the animal. Without a biblical background, what would you do with that? you know, Leviticus 7, because there is no other ancient text outside the Bible. So it's my view, Eve, that in that part of the world, the Bible is our go-to source. Yeah. And I, we don't need to apologize about that. Uh, I've spent my life trying to understand the Amarna letters and the Egyptian literature and the Mesopotamian literature, which is very vast. Um, but since I have an advantage in that I'm a Bible reader and I've been reading it all my life, every day, all my life, um, that gives me an advantage. And mm -hmm. so I, why would I, when I'm excavating a biblical site, why would I want to separate it out? Now, the conclusions drawn from that, that's a totally separate right. issue, okay? And it's an issue of faith. But the historicity behind it, we find hundreds of examples uh, where we synchronize between the archaeological data and the biblical text. Mm -hmm. That's a great explanation. Because, uh, I mean, it is an issue. And, uh, you know, it was an issue for me this year, uh, learning some of the things. And, you know, everybody kind of makes their way through that in terms of the archaeologists and the people studying it. I know. Well, but Eve, notice how no can. one ever asked the, agno the agnostic archaeologist, can you separate your agnosticism right. from, your, from your work right. in the field? Right. Because so that's a presupposition as well. Everyone has presupposition. Mm -hmm. Everyone has paradigm. Can we deal with it honestly, forthrightly is, is the issue, with right. innocence of I. And that's a, absolutely my goal. I have no, no desire other than to understand what happened historically. You know, Dr. Adams are tall, uh, you know, maybe his memory be for a blessing whom we mentioned because he was the one who discovered Joshua's altar and a lot of other amazing sites around the country. Uh, grew up within a completely secular, even anti-religious environment on the kibbutz here in Israel and came to believe in the book of Joshua because of his archaeological work. He got right. into a lot of trouble for it from other archaeologists who said, and because he was digging specifically in the area of Menashe, the biblical area of Menashe, you know, you're the settler's archaeologist was thrown at him. Um, and he said, I'm right. just looking at the science. And the fact is, is that the science is upholding what this book says. Well, there you go. How foolish would it be to excavate on Manival and to not have in mind Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8? Right. 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 It makes no sense. Eve, let me briefly mention, just to make Please. sure your audience is aware, because a lot of people are not, that uh, as amazing as this rectangular altar is, and it is pretty amazing, mm -hmm. uh, dating from about 1250 to 1150 BC, that's the occupational right. period. But um, to make sure you guys know this, there is a round altar underneath it. And that round altar is at the perfect geometric center of the rectangular altar. In other words, the rectangular altar was built intentionally to cover and protect that earlier altar. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's earlier, it's underneath it. Right. So in, in my view, it seems pretty self-evident that the rectangular altar is not Joshua's altar. It's the round altar that the rectangular altar is per protecting. They're both important. It's all in an interconnected story. But uh, just to remind everybody right. that it's the round altar that's the 
Yeah. The thing that excites Yeah, there's me. a couple layers there. It's a fascinating site. And I, I just hope that it's being protected now the way that it should be. We had an incident already a few months ago where some Arab contractor accidentally ground up part of the wall around it to make a road. Uh, okay, so I... It's a G-rated show, so I'll leave some of my comments aside. Well, maybe PG now that I think about it. But yeah, but, uh, you know, the difficulty, of course, that we have is that so many of the sites because of politics here in Israel have been are in areas that we can't protect properly. And uh, in Dvir Aviv, for example, who you mentioned, who you published the, the last article with, was one of my professors this year. And he was he's, of course, incredibly involved with a lot of these sites. He himself lives in Samaria. And, uh, you know, and these are things that are that are irreparable once they're damaged. Like you said, you find the bones scattered around some of the pottery because maybe that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for the metal. They're looking for the jewels. But um, this is really a, a crime against humanity in many ways, because this is everybody's history. Well, that's right. And we we tell the whole story of whatever we find from Canaanite to Islamic and everything yeah. in between. It's it's the story of humanity. What is so troublesome is to have fought all these years vandalism, because even in Area C, there's just yeah. so many sites that, you know, there's not the manpower to to protect them. But how grateful am I now to be excavating at Shiloh, where we're completely protected? Yes. Um, you know, we were able to leave our tools in our excavation squares. Uh, it's just the total opposite of what I've experienced the rest of my career. So I'm excited mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, I was actually at Herodian last week and there's a fence there. In order to get down out to Herodian, you have to go through a, a gate. And it seems like they're really trying to protect that as well, because that's a phenomenal site. But there isn't the budget, there isn't the manpower to be able to you can't have a camera 24-7 on every single site. There's tens of thousands of sites. It's kind of relying on the goodness of human nature, which I think all of us are around yeah. the world for every reason in the book, a little bit more <laughs> jaded than we used to be. Let's put it yeah, that way. That's for sure. So when you, when do you plan to come back? Um, early May. Okay. Um, I plan to, to work, God willing, for, uh, for at least uh, seven weeks this summer, five weeks in the field at Shiloh, and then some pre-work and some post-work. And then it's a documentary that we're going to be filming while we're mm -hmm. there too. Uh, looks like we're gonna have a big team. Everybody is super excited having oh. not been to Israel for a couple of years. Totally. Uh, everyone's chomping at the bit. We're looking forward to celebrating the 100th anniversary of the uh, Danish breaking ground right. at Shiloh 100 years ago. So it ought to be a big summer. Mm -hmm. And who knows what you'll find this summer? I mean, you're going to be celebrating the, the re, you know, the recent finds, but I mean, every time you spray that dirt in the, you know, in, in the wet sifting, who knows what's going to pop up? It's sacred soil. We love it. We're super excited about it. Yeah, really very special. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad you're involved. And, and uh, you know, even Thanks. despite and, the past know, couple of years. Your friends, your listeners in Judea, Samaria are always welcome to come by. Um, yeah. To, they can volunteer. They can wet sift with us. They can come see and, and experience the excavation. Too. So how would they uh, get in touch with you to do that? Facebook or? Um, Digshiloh.org is the website, digshiloh.org. Okay. And then if yes, they can connect with me in social media or they can bug you and get my, my That's also fine. Or, or <laughs> as long as I have permission to give it out, I've got no you problem do. doing you so. Do. They're volunteers. You before. 
Right. Yeah. No, exactly. No, it's really, if you got, first of all, you guys have to get here, whoever's listening, and this is a great opportunity uh, to be able to do so. Leave the manicure at home and get out there. There's really nothing like it. Even just a day can be totally life-changing. Yeah. Um, it's not Universal Studios. This is the real deal. That's right. Absolutely the real deal. Great smile. Um, okay. So looking forward to also hearing what is in that lead amulet um, as best as you guys can figure out. You know, I just have to end with this, and I think you'll appreciate this as well, um, because I see Hashem in the little things and the fact that there is such intensive uh, digging now in the land of Israel, and by coincidence, the science has come to a place where we can find a pit and just figure out almost who ate it and when and almost how much they paid for it. And all these things that yeah. just a few years ago, we could we had carbon-14. And now we just have so many ways of getting in there. I don't see that as just a coincidence. I think yeah. uh, we got really big power looking over our shoulders and helping us with all of this. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, archaeologists in the past, you know, made mistakes doing the best that they sure. could. But... They did a lot of things right, too. And archaeologists like Zertal left part of the site. So there's a portion of that round altar that's unexcavated. He left mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And so for a future time when the technology is better, right. you know, which uh, maybe will be in my lifetime. Uh, uh, who yeah. Knows? Yeah. But, but that's an important um, point because to dig is to destroy. So you got to leave some of it for the future generations. Yeah, unless it's a salvage dig that is in nothing, they're going to build houses on top right. of it or something like that. That's a different story. I will tell you something really interesting that I learned um, just this week. I thought I knew everything about wet sifting, but I learned something new. Um, Gordon Govier wrote a good article in the new issue of Artifacts magazine, A-R-T-I-F-A-X, Artifacts, oh, and um, on, on wet sifting. And it sort of talks about our work and a larger perspective. But anyway, he mentions in there, and I verified it since the article came out, that Starkey at Lachish back in the 1930s was wet sifting. Really? Yes. James, James Starkey was wet sifting James at Lachish? James Starkey at Lachish had a three-step process that he went through, and the final step was washing the finds before they discarded anything. Really? And it's right there. I've got the documentation. And nobody else did it, but think how in- innovative Starkey must have been and meticulous. And then it just got forgotten, you know, and wow. nobody did it, got forgotten. But uh, so there you go. So you I'm a little freaked out that you just mentioned Starkey because I was just talking about him yesterday. And this is not somebody that I normally, you know, I talk right. about on a daily, but I was talking to people. I was in Jerusalem yesterday and I was talking to people about the Rothschild Museum, this beautiful gem of a museum. Mm-hmm just outside of Damascus Gate in Jerusalem that's rarely visited. But James Starkey was invited to the opening in 1938 under the British mandate. And even though he was a Christian, he had a long white beard. And he was on his way to the opening. He was kidnapped and murdered by Arabs. Um, They thought he was an Orthodox Jew, apparently. That's how the story goes. And even like dismembered. I mean, really. And he was he was a phenomenal. I mean, he was really an amazing archaeologist. Of course, the opening was delayed. But, you know, I was thinking about this also in terms Mm. of that this this evil that we're up against has been around for a long time. And this man who maybe would have publicized more, if you're saying that he was involved with wet sifting, maybe could have saved decades of things being thrown out, had more people known what he was doing. And he was also, you know, taken way before his time. 
So it's wow. like certain things just keep coming back up. But Lachish is also an incredible dig. I'm sure you'll get there at some point too. <laughs> Let's not yeah, introduce so. in some areas, so maybe not. <laughs> I, know, I used to Eve uh, 20 years ago, I was still naive enough to think I was going to excavate the whole world. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm now realizing that that's not going to happen. And I've right. got to sort of pick my balance. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm glad that we're your ground zero for that. I really am. <laughs> and looking forward to seeing you in a, few, in a couple months and, and, you know, and finding out uh, some of this great stuff that you're still sitting on right now and I am not going to get it out of you. So we're just going to have to end this podcast, but uh, no, but it's super, super exciting. Did you, can you get more of the, the, the salvage from, and maybe find Possibly some. So, I mean, I yeah. think once we publish this, which is going to be revolutionary, right? The, the publication, I think there's going to be an outcry to get the other 70% of the dump, you know? Wow. Okay. But, um, you know, we'll see how that unfolds. There's always political forces at play. So. Yeah. And, and we have to keep it protected until then. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, for sure. This is much, much bigger than a pile of dirt. <laughs> like, much, much bigger. Yeah. There's no such thing, I think, anywhere in this holy land, actually. Okay. Dr. Scott, Scott Stripling, I always love talking to you, really. Thank and you. Um, rather do it in person, but this is fine as well. And I'm sure my listeners enjoy it too. So thank you for shedding a little light on what's been in the news. And um, and we'll, we'll wait to hear more very patiently or maybe not so patiently, but we will wait. <laughs> thank you. I look forward to seeing okay. you face to face soon. All right. Take care and take care, everybody out there. Hope Wherever you are, you are well. Um, uh, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everyone. Thanks to Ben and to Tabitha. And goodbye for now. Hey, everybody. This is Jeremy Gimpel. Have you heard about the Land of Israel Fellowship? People from all over the world, 24 countries, have joined. We meet live every Sunday, and the video session is recorded and then broadcast to all the members. And it's an exclusive group. It's a group that's focused on learning. We're focused on praying together. We're focused on growing together. And it has been one of the biggest blessings in my life. And we have people from New Zealand to Australia, Alaska, Hawaii, Hong Kong, Jews, Christians. We have a Buddhist. We have one Muslim that's joined. We have people from so many different backgrounds, languages, and cultures. And we are literally creating a virtual house of prayer for all nations. And it is truly marvelous. And so if you want more information about that, please visit www.thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship. And I would love to see you next Sunday.